the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, today's chat is with Wing Commander Bob Redman, CSC. Bob joined the RAAF in August of 1967 for training as a pilot. After graduation, he was posted to Iroquois Huey Helicopters. From then, Bob has had many varied experiences and adventures. In 1970, he served on Hueys in Vietnam for 15 months, including service with the 45th Medivac Company, U.S. Army. He was mentioned in dispatches for his service in Vietnam. He then joined the U.S. Navy Test Pilot School uh, in Maryland, USA, and then worked as a test pilot in the U.S. Naval Air Test Centre and Australia's Aircraft Research and Development Unit. Following this, he completed a posting as a flying instructor before he commanded the transport support flight in Malaysia flying DC-3 Caribou and UH-1H helicopters. Then, for his sins, he completed RAAF Command and Staff Course, served in a number of staff positions in Air Force Headquarters and the Pentagon. 1986 to 1989, before retiring at the end of 1991. Bob, during his spare time being a civilian, served on the RAAF Reserve working in the Australian Defence Force Warfare Centre in Williamtown. He could not stay away from the RAAF and so in November 1996 he commenced full-time reserve service in 81 Wing headquarters at uh, Williamtown primarily to coordinate the transition from the Mackie to the then new Hawk 127. He was awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross in July 2002. Bob's last posting was to Tamworth from July 2002 as a flying instructor. Bob, what a career. Good morning, Gareth. Yes, very interesting. (laughs) It's fascinating, actually. In August of 1967, you joined the RAF. Yep. What were you doing before that? I was surfing at the taxpayer's expense for a while, and then uh, <laughs> and then I got a job on the bank. I think I owed them a fair bit of money, and that was one way that they could make sure that I repaid my debts. And uh, I went on the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, I, I used to go around the, uh, the bush and the city, on the relieving staff, that was what I was. And Fair then, enough. Fair and I enough. got called up for national service. So call up for national service was your entry into the RAF or did you do the national service and then join the RAF? No, Which I, were the steps? I, I was called up for national service and when I did get the call up, I applied to join the Air Force and it happened a lot quicker than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Well, oh, great. You join in August of 1967 and you, you end up with experiences in windjeels and vampires. Can you tell us the steps that led to that? And what is a windjeel? A windjeel was a tail-dragging uh, Australian-designed and manufactured training aircraft. It was a bit of a beast. It had about a 450-horsepower radial engine and uh, that was my first introduction to aircraft. And... I found it uh, quite intimidating. In what way? uh, It was a big beast, and it had a few uh, less than desirable uh, 
directional control issues that not many people didn't ground loop a wind chill. <laughs> and uh, it, but it was a big aircraft for for twenty or well, eighteen to twenty year olds to uh, be introduced to flying. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. And the step. From windjills to vampires, why was that and how did that occur? Uh, that was the, the system at that stage. Uh, you did about 125 hours on the windjill at Point Cook and you learned all the you know, instrument flying, formation flying, navigation mm. as well as uh, you know, the normal getting used to it in the circuit. And then you, if you... So the windjill at less cost than the vampire, weeded out the people that weren't going to make it. So then if you survived the wind chill, you then went on to the vampire. And then the loss rate of students on the vampire was less steep. Or I understand. Yeah. And so then the vampire, you did pretty much the same thing as you did in the wind chill, just a lot faster and a lot higher. <laughs> Can you recall the, your first experience with a vampire? What was it like? Oh, it was quite exciting uh, to to get in a jet, and even though it was wooden framed and and it used to clunk every time you roll it inverted, but it was a a lot of fun, and it was you know pretty much a World War One, a World War Two, sorry, yeah, fighter aircraft about that performance. Sure, I'm, as a little boy, mm. uh, my grandmother lived in in Enmore Newtown, yep. and that it had a flight path across out where they lived, mm. and I used to occasionally see the vampire with the two tails fly across and think wow what a great looking in, in fact dinky toys yep. brought out a vampire as a toy and I, I think i might still have it actually <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to keep it well you, you 1967 you join you you're flying the wind shields you get yep. into the vampire now was that all with nine squadron or did you then no that was, so the basic flying training was with one BFTS at Point Cook, then advanced, number one advanced flying training school at Pierce near Perth. And then from there, uh, you get posted to your operational type. And so I was posted to Fire Squadron at Canberra, at Fairburn, yeah. to do an operational conversion onto the Iroquois helicopter. And in those days, because of Vietnam... A lot of people went to either Canberra's for two squadron, yes, or for the Caribou's for thirty-five squadron, uh, or to five squadron to do your operational conversion unit on the Huey before you went to nine squadron. Okay, I explain the steps. You're talking about helicopters, and a second ago we're talking about vampires. Yep. How did that occur, and why? Uh, pr- normally, in most air forces, you were probably streamed after the wind drill, and if you're going to helicopters, you'd go straight to helicopters, but um, our air force is small, and I think it was better. And, and the focus of the air force is on the fighter game, so yep, control sure. of the air. Sure. And so everybody trained to one standard, and there was a minimum standard. And and if you met the minimum standard, then as you graduated from course, they asked you where you wanted to go. If you were first on course, you got your first choice. If it was available, and it wasn't always available. Uh, and so on down the line. So for the last one in line, you got what was available. <laughs> Are you telling me you were the last one in the line and you got <laughs> not, the helicopters? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> but, but a lot of really good blokes went to helicopters because they needed cannon fodder for Vietnam. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're with 9 Squadron to about 1971. Yep. And in Vietnam, you were with the Medivac Co. Um, what, what is that and how did you get into that? Uh, at, when I first arrived, uh, Nine Squadron wasn't holding uh, Medivac standby at Nui Dat. 
Uh, we used to do a lot of medevacs because there was an American aircraft from the 45th Medevac Company, which yep. was up at Longbin near Benoit and, and Saigon, and they would stand medevac for the Australians. And I think that was a, it was a ha- hangover from earlier days when we had the earlier Bravo model and only eight of them. Yep. And then by the time I got there, we had 16 of the hotel models. So any of the Australian Air Force helicopters could do a medevac because our crewmen were uh, first aid trained and periodically before that we also used to stand uh, and take army or air force medics if we were dedicated to that role but um, because of aircraft availability and that the 45th medevac company had the overall responsibility for the whole of the three core area in vietnam um, it uh, that they just kept it until they started pulling out. And then we uh, picked up the medevac role again. So then we would have a dedicated helicopter on standby for medevac. But even then, uh, and that's why myself and another bloke, John Burns, were sent up to see how the Americans did it. Mm. Just reminisce for a little while. You're in the RAAF, you are in Vietnam. As a serving officer, serving person, what was it like? What do you remember? Oh, a lot of comradeship and being very proud to be part of a pretty slick outfit. Yeah. And uh, very proud of the way the, um, the Army worked. And we worked very closely with them. Some of them didn't like us, but most of them did. <laughs> so that relationship between the forces, Army, yep. Air Force, yep. then, that is now much stronger today than it was then. How, how did it work? Uh pretty well with the SAS, who are our main, in our opinion, our main uh, requirement because they often operated beyond the support of organic firepower, so artillery and, sure. and so on. So we were their only way out in most cases. And so uh, through enlightened self-interest, <laughs> the SAS kept very close to us. <laughs> and vice versa, Robert, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we admired the way they operated. Um, Did you form... Friendships? Still today. Still yes. today, yeah. Yes. Between 1971 and 1973, and 1973 is an interesting year, which I'll we'll get to in a moment, what yep. were you doing? I came back to Fire Squadron in Canberra, met my future wife. <laughs> she was a nurse at Canberra Hospital. Uh, then uh, I was away most of the time working with the SAS over in the West. Uh, we did a recovery of two Bell Air Cobra aircraft up on Cape York, Still had live ammunition, including high explosive Great. rounds, Great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and deployments to New Guinea and deployments to Shoulder Bay and uh, other training areas in Queensland. So, I think in the nine months or less than nine months I was there, probably six months, I was actually in Canberra for about 14 days and not consecutively. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Nine Squadron came back from Vietnam and I joined it in the January. Now, I said I wanted to get to December 1973, mm. RAAF Australia. Yep. You joined the US Navy test well, pilot school. I, I went to do the test pilots course, but I'd, uh, after Nine Squadron, I'd gone to an air movement training development unit to be the Air Force's first and instant expert in rigging of downed aircraft and, uh, and, and crewman training because we hadn't had a formal training then, so I was the first bunny. And uh, <laughs> then uh, in that... We had to go and pull out of the jungle a few wrecked 
helicopters and so went to Cape York and... Uh, Pull out of the jungle in which part of the world? Well, first one was in uh, Cape York, about uh, probably 180 nautical miles west of Cooktown. Right. Uh, an army sewer had gone into the, into the swamp and so I grabbed some uh, rigging gear and joined a nine squadron chopper at uh, Cooktown and then we flew west using cased fuel drums and then got dropped into the swamp with a really nice army bloke and uh, the two of us rigged a floating raft with 44 gallon drums Then we rigged the aircraft and the Huey came and hovered over the aircraft I got everybody into it because that was we were short on fuel and uh, <laughs> and weather and time and then I climbed up on top of the Sioux as the Huey came over hooked the uh, the lift up and then climbed onto the skids and then into the aircraft and for about five minutes we tried to take off and couldn't so it was I, too heavy yeah so I climbed out and they sat there for another two or three minutes and got a gust of wind and away they went and then I suddenly realized I was standing waist deep in a swamp <laughs> By yourself? On myself, with no survival gear, nothing. So I climbed up a... I'd suddenly thought about uh, crocodiles, so I climbed up a tree and thought, I hope Rod Adams can find me. (laughs) 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 He came back about an hour later. I was very, very pleased to see him. I can imagine. (laughs) And I've been shouting him beers ever since. (laughs) Um, You were trained on windshields and vampires, and then in 73, as I said, you went to the US Navy Test Pilot School. Yep. Can you, were there differences in their training technique as opposed to what the Australians taught you? Yeah, being a helicopter pilot, I wasn't expected to have much training in in fixed-wing flying, but I had, and it was interesting in those days, the flying qualities and performance of fixed-wing aircraft was vastly superior and many ways still are than than rotary-wing aircraft. So they wanted to expose the helicopter pilots to the handling qualities and performance of fixed-wing aircraft and uh, try and then encourage the manufacturers to improve their game and and to realise where where helicopter performance and handling should go. And so uh, they whatever the fellas did on fixed wing, we also did, but usually on lesser performance aircraft mm. like uh, OV tens or OV ones, observational aircraft. Sure, you end up in Butterworth in 1980. You posted there as CO. How did that come about? Uh, just preferences, and there was a bit of resistance to uh, a chopper pilot getting in charge of fixed wing aircraft at the time. <laughs> but, but but how can that be? Because you'd just come back. No, I'd gone from there to instructing on Mac. I'd gone back to the research unit right. at Laverton and then uh, done a Mackie conversion and gone instructing over at Pierce. And I was only supposed to be there for six months and then come back to the research unit. But they forgot about me and I didn't remind them. So I joined the Royal West Australian Air Force for about th- two and a half, three years and had a whale of a time flying Mackies. <laughs> and then, Again, fixed-wing aircraft. Then I went to... Uh, to Butterworth, and um, it was a bit of a sinecure for transport pilots to get that job as a bit of a rest from all their hard mm. work, but I snuck in under the radar. <laughs> While you are in Butterworth, you were flying DC-3s, caribous and helicopters. Yep. Um, my memory of a DC-3 is when I was about seven, taking off from Mascot 
to go to Brisbane and when it reached a certain flight, the air hostess would come along and give you lollies so your ears wouldn't pop. What, what are your memories of the DC-3? Oh, it was real Ernest K. Gan moments flying all over Southeast Asia and the South China Sea and an old goonie bird with no nav aids. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so it was yeah, definitely like Ernest K. Gan and you know, Fate as the Hunter style flying. And it was uh, a lot of fun and a good crew. Some of the DC-3s are still flying. Yes, they are, but uh, I don't think any would be uh, viable today. They don't meet modern okay. uh, performance requirements, and, and more, it's more of a flying museum than it is a practical uh, carry-out. Although the DC-3 carried a little bit more, a bit further and a bit faster than the Caribou, <laughs> but the Caribou could do it on, in short short field, much better in short Which fields. Which was your preferred plane? I think I preferred flying the Caribou better, but I think in the job we were doing up in Butterworth and throughout the Philippines and Thailand and yep. Indonesia, the DC-3 was better because it was an airliner and used to flying as a single aircraft away, whereas the Caribou was a military aircraft and you needed a lot of ground service equipment. It was very specialised. Wing commander, how did that come about? Oh, just happen to be in the right place at the right time. You keep on times. saying that, but you have to have skill, Bob. You have to have skill. Well, despite some of my less desirable uh, attributes, I had enough to uh, to do it. I suppose it started early. I was given in in Nine Squadron. I think I was fairly ordinary until I got to Nine Squadron. Yeah. And had a really good CEO, Peter Coy. Uh, and we'd gone through some trials and tribulations on course and at Fire Squadron before we got there. Uh, we'd lost four people in January and April of that year. We mm. were grounded for a while. And then I got to Nine Squad and I was very impressed with the way that they uh, they operated. And uh, there were 16 Kiwis that rotated through the squadron. There were mm -hmm. four there when I got there. They were really good value. And I was just being in the right place at the right time, got an early captaincy and then an early flight lead checkout. So sure. So most of my time in Vietnam, the majority of the time, I probably flew as flight lead. I still flew all the other missions as well I as understand. a co-pilot, but, but I was designated and not everybody got that as a, as a pilot officer. To what extent is what I'm about to say right or wrong? Um, a leader is not made, a leader is born. To some extent it's true, but I think it depends a lot on your environment so genes and nurturing and then training helps enormously and people if if you expect the best people and you explain it to them most people will aspire to doing then the way we used to look at it was this command leadership and management and the way i saw it was command was the act of decision mm -hmm. leadership was the motivation and managing all your resources, people and everything else to provide the commander with optimum options for a decision. And then once that decision's made, then the management function comes back in uh, and the leadership comes back in to motivate and manage the people to implement the plan sure. and then feedback when it's going awry. Yep. Fantastic. I, I understand completely. Why did you retire in 1991? The helicopters has been transferred to the army. I was about to get promoted to group captain, and I was told. And 
I would have had to have left our eldest child in Canberra and that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and so it was about a 51-49 split and I spoke to my wife and uh, we, we wanted to come to Williamtown. Uh, my father had died a year or so earlier. Mum was on her own. My brother was struggling with a family business. And uh, so I asked for a post into Williamtown at the end of the year and they said, oh, hang on six months. And I just said, no, we're going. So I went. In 2002, which is a pretty significant honour, you were awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross for your work at 78 and 81 Wings. <laughs> Tell us how that felt and why is it significant for someone in the services to be awarded such? I think it's a reward for, being, for having a good team. And so if we didn't have a good team, and at that stage... I was piggy in the middle between BAE systems on one side and the Air Force on the other. And uh, we got on well. And there were a lot more things going on than just the Mackie and the Hawk at the time. Mm. Uh, so it was a recognition that uh, would probably uh, neglected my family life for a few years. <laughs> just let me explore that for a moment, getting on well. If we looked at the three services, if you're in the Navy... In yep. most cases, you're all on the one ship, so it's it's a family on a ship. Yep. If you're in the army, uh, you still are pretty much together in your squad or your corps or your whatever. But if you're in the Air Force and you're a pilot, you're in a plane by yourself most of the time. So how is that? how does that occur, getting on like the army and like the navy? It doesn't. The Air Force started out with army and navy people. Army and Navy people formed the Air Force, predominantly Army. And the Air Force evolved the way it did because the task demanded it. And I think now, and it's really pleasing to see, the Army has a much better understanding of the way the other two services work. Because mm -hmm. in my day, joint operations were those Army procedures that are acceptable to Air Force and, and Navy. Well, now there's a lot uh, better understanding because they've started a single academy. Right. They've started uh, single staff courses. And, and there's, there's reasons why you've got to build a good esprit within your environment, but the ultimate responsibility for the Air Force is at least some degree of control of the air. And so that puts different demands. And you can see it... Uh, when you look at defensive Tyndall from a ground attack, mm -hmm. the Air Force commander's going to want those bloody army right in close. <laughs> but the army's going to want to be out and defending in depth. And that's what I think he should do. And the other side of the coin is the army wants the bloody Air Force right over the top. <laughs> but the Air Force is want to, want to be right out the front defending in depth. And it takes more than just a, a, an instinct to understand that. Yeah. Just a couple of things I, I do want to pick up on. Um, you have said in combat, yep. a bad decision is better than no decision. What did you mean by that? Any decision keeps you a moving target and it's a hell of a lot easier to hit a sitting duck than a moving target. And there's one thing I learnt you know, if you're flying the gunships in Vietnam, you're generally moving uh, because you're, you're in a pattern 
so you're all covering yourself, at least a pair, and desirably three or four ship. So you, you kept on trying to get the other aircraft to cover you as you rolled in on the target. Right. If you were doing medevac or pulling someone up there, you were a sitting duck. You were hovering at the top of the jungle, sending a, a winch down and bringing up the wounded, and that took time, and, and the whole time you were a sitting duck. So in preference, so even more than the gunships, if you were going into a hot area to pick up wounded or do a, a delivery, you'd try and manoeuvre so that you were constantly turning, descending, accelerating and decelerating until the last moment, then you'd just pop in, land and get out. And that's how you sort of operated with the SIS. But uh, doing the medevac job was far more... Uh, Scary, I suppose. Yeah, I can imagine. Sitting duck. I can imagine. Unpredictable versus predictable. You said enemy to f as far yeah. as the enemy is concerned, and also the crew. You wanted to be predictable for the crew or your wingman or whoever's in the fight on your side, but you wanted to be unpredictable to the enemy, and so you had to become a split personality in some ways, so that you you never took the same path. You always uh, dived around, but within the standard operating procedures that Nine Squadron had, um, you you uh, tried to keep, like I said, predictable to the people who were on your side, yes. but unpredictable to the opposition. Okay. In the cockpit, you're the pilot. Yep. Um, what's the communication with you and the rest of the crew like? Or are you totally focused on what you're doing and you're no, not? No. In the, in the Huey, you had to use the other three people. You couldn't do the job without them. And so you had a crewman on the right who operated the hoist and he was in charge of the rear yep. loading the aircraft. And you had a gunner on the left and they each had a machine gun, a single M60 machine gun and the slicks. In the gunships they had two M60 machine guns. Uh, one on either side of yeah, the aircraft. Yeah, well, yeah. in the gunship two on either side. Yeah, right. The slicks, one on either side. And then you had to coordinate you had to we had three um radios we had to operate so we or the pilot well the All pilot's in charge of everything but he had to delegate tasks to the other three and so to keep your eye on what was going on uh, you had to bias the volume of the radio that was most important to you you didn't stop listening to the other two radios but you had to bias it and also you had to bias your intercom uh, because you'd, the, the, you'd want to hear from the crewman more than you'd want to hear from the gunner because the crewman was in charge sure. of the back and then you had your co-pilot who was making sure you didn't stuff up or could see something else. So you had to listen to the other three people and you had to balance the three radios. So this is all happening in your headphones? Yes. Or your cans as I would call them? Yes. Of all the aircraft you've flown... Which one would you like to go back into? There's two answers to that. <laughs> I thought there would be. Yeah. To, to do the job, I'd love to go back to a Huey. In fact, I was fortunate to have the Army bring one down from my last flight in the Air Force <laughs> and, and take me up for a ride. Uh, and so it was so rewarding to see the immediate results of your efforts. Uh, for handling qualities... Um, I was lucky to get a few backseat rides on Mirage and I just love the handling quality of the Mirage. Uh, Mackie was a really sweet little Italian Alfa Romeo and uh, the F-18 was 
you know, superb and in some ways not as awe-inspiring awe in, in pure flying as the Mirage, but I think probably uh, a much better weapon of war. Sure. In this centenary year for the Royal Australian Air Force, it has been people like you that have made it the preeminent service within the Australian Defence Force. It is always there to serve. Uh, Wing Commander Bob Redmond, thank you for your participation. Thank you for what you did to all those souls who might not be here when they were in Vietnam because of Medivac. Uh, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. It was a lot of fun for 45 years or whatever it is now <laughs> and, and the last 40 minutes. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.